everybody. I'm so excited to be presenting this episode to you. I recorded this a little while ago and I've been taking a bit of a break from podcasting so I can focus on my own well-being and um, a few things to wrap up with my um, master's course. So I'm glad that that's all over. It's been a really intense year doing so many things remotely and being cooped up in a little room on the computer most of the day for most days of the week so I'm really excited that Melbourne has a bit more freedom now and we can get out and about and see some friends uh, go to the gym and do all the things that are important for my own self-care and that really bring me a lot of joy and happiness. In this episode I chat with Sue Hancock and she is an incredible practitioner and she works in a area of interest for me uh, looking at uh, forensic services so she has a real passion for working with young people and really wants to reduce um, their involvement in the criminal justice system I know this is a topic that a lot of people have expressed an interest in as they've been joining the Facebook group and through some of the messages I'm getting so I really I hope you enjoy this episode it was uh, really interesting to record and I think it might be one of many uh, episodes on this topic because I think it's something that is of particular interest to social workers at the moment and it aligns quite strongly with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and a lot of the um, conversations that have been had recently, in particular around NAIDOC week, but also in the last few weeks looking at um, deaths in custody. I hope you enjoy this episode uh, with Sue. Uh, hello and welcome to the podcast. Today I'm interviewing Susie Hancocks. Welcome, Susie. Thanks, Maria. Um, could you share with the listeners a little bit about your journey? We've just spent a bit of time realising our multiple connections in the same suburb we live in, um, which has been really lovely. But could you share with the listeners who you are and a bit about your journey? Sure. Um in terms of who I am professionally, I guess um, I started out as a nurse. Um, I was actually an ICU nurse for a while. And then um, as part of my, because it was in the 80s when I did my nursing training and I did a rotation in a psych unit. And I think that was the moment that something kind of clicked for me. I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is way more interesting. But I didn't want to be a psych nurse. So anyway, I did ICU nursing and um, saw a careers counsellor who recommended that I do social work. Um, and the recommendation was social work rather than psychology because their, their, rationale, their rationale for that was that um, social workers have a lot more opportunities in terms of areas that they can move into. And I knew nothing, so I just agreed and went, okay. And um, and this uh, I was living in Brisbane at the time, and um, so I got into social work in Melbourne and did a four-year undergraduate at RMIT, and um, loved social work. It was really I did. Um, it was a a really different transition from social work to nursing, but I I completely ended up in the deep end. My first job working with really high-risk multiple complex need young women in a therapeutic service um, and I did that for quite a few years and I have always worked with youth just loved it I think it was even my last nursing job so while I was 
finishing, so I nursed all through my social work degree and my last nursing job was in a, a youth homelessness service um, in the city that's still there, a place called Front Yard. And um, I, I love to work with young people and I think it's, a, it's always about their, they've got so much kind of, there's, at a serious level, they're about change. You know, that's their, their developmental task is about change and movement and shifting. So in terms of psychiatry, it's ideal because they're about recovery. That's their journey is about change. And so their opportunity for recovery is amazing and their optimism and, and they're, you know, they're feisty often. You know, they push hard and I love it. So I've, I've always been drawn to work with youth and... So I just continued to do that and I did a range of different roles. I worked um, with some high-risk child protection clients for a very short period of time. It wasn't for me. Um, and then I did my first forensic role. So I started a master's in um, counselling in the early 2000s and, um, and took on my first forensic role, which was with community and custodial youth justice clients doing therapeutic work. And I really, really liked the work, but I think what I realised pretty quickly was that psychologists um, dominate forensics. All of the research is a very heavily um, research-based field. It relies heavily on evidence for any kind of intervention and for understanding. And my social work degree had a, a really low emphasis on research, so I certainly didn't feel equipped. Um, and so I decided I would do psychology. I think the other thing is also because there's a really um, high representation of young people with cognitive deficits in forensics, not just young people, but in forensics generally. And again, you know, all of those um, assessment tools are um, only able to be accessed by psychologists. So frustrated by my lack of access to research and to cognitive assessment, I decided to do psychology. So I kind of, I think there was even a crossover maybe finishing my master's and doing my, um, starting a, a postgrad. Because of my social work degree, I just had to do a, uh, the core psychology subjects. Um, I don't know how I did it. When I think about it now, it seems like a lot to be doing and working the whole time. I think I never worked less than four days a week. Um, and so then I got a job in psychiatry, in youth psychiatry, and I loved it. I was like, ah, oh, okay. This is this is the spot for me. This is always, and it's kind of full circle from that nursing placement in psychiatry. Um, and so I, I worked at Origin, which is a, a youth mental tertiary youth mental health service for um, nearly fifteen years. And during that time, I did a forensic role. So I did a lot of crisis work. And. Um, finished psych and then I started somewhere along the line I started doing some private practice as well. Oh, I think I did it now I remember. It's not that long ago but um, I so I what was happening I had long service leave and I had a whole year that I could take 
And most people are like traveling to Europe or doing all these really cool things. And I did psych honors, which seems like in retrospect, it was great um, to be able to have the year. But um, yeah, I, I missed that trip that I could have had somewhere. Um, and so I started private practice that same year. And I loved it because I had done cognitive analytic therapy training, which is a two-year training course at Origin. Um, so I loved the therapy work that I was doing. I love the placements I did during psychology because I went on to do masters as well in clinical psych. Um, and during that time, I thought I'd just stay at Origin, keep things a bit normal while I was doing masters. And then a job came up at Forensic Care to coordinate the program that I'd been a clinician in. So I'd been a youth justice mental health clinician, so just providing mental health assessment intervention for youth justice clients in the community. I did that role for about six years at Origin. And part of that role, I also did forensic risk assessment, which I really loved. And... Yeah, so then the position came up to run the program and around, you know, I was in that for maybe six months and then finished um, my Masters in Clean Psych. And that was nearly a year ago. And so I've been in this role for about 18 months. So, so yeah. Tri trifecta of uh, degrees there. Mm. Well, I didn't mention my my first study was in fashion and design. <laughs> so everything else is quite a departure from that. All the others feel like they, you know, people think about them being quite separate. And, you know, my friends often give me a bit of stick about having done so much study. Um, but they, they fit really well for me. I think that they, they really add, you know, that there's a real benefit and I don't think about when people say oh you know lots of people I work with introduce themselves as a, as a psychologist and I don't think about myself in those kind of I don't know for me that feels a bit siloed uh, basically I'm a mental health clinician and you know I work in youth forensics but I have the I feel really fortunate to both have the lens of a social worker and the clinical skills and knowledge of a psychologist. I feel like it's a pretty fortunate position to be in, really. Mm, absolutely. So we, we got in touch around a particular area of interest for me, which was the, um, the Raise the Age campaign mm. that had been, um, I guess, started and a little bit more prominent in, I guess, in the media recently. Could you talk to me a little bit about what what you think of that, and maybe for those who don't know what it is, what it is, and where they can find out more? Oh, sure. Um, well, there's a hashtag um, raise the age, and there's a, a website set up that's got some good resources if you don't um, if you haven't really heard about it. But raise the age was. Look, I think the campaign was only started maybe last year, but I think there's been people working on this for a long time. And it's really about raising the age of criminal culpability because in Australia, um, young people as, 
as young, well, their children as young as 10 can be prosecuted and incarcerated. And this is really, um, I think it's pretty shameful. And I think it's, it's very different to other um, Western industrialised countries that Australia is um, one of few that still has criminal culpability at such a young age. So most other countries, it's 14 and up. So um, the campaign was started because there was an opportunity for the Attorneys General to um, make a decision to raise the age to 14. And that was in, I think it was June this year when that um, opportunity came up. And so there was a real push and um, there are a number of different organisations. So um, the Australian Medical Association, the Jesuit Social Services, um, different groups of lawyers, I don't know their organisational names, but, you know, large groups of lawyers and um, Indigenous organisations. In, there was a really wide range of organisations around Australia really pushed um, for the, raise, the age to be raised. And there's lots of good evidence, and I'm happy to talk about that, um, for why it should be. Uh, so there's Jesuits have written quite a bit about it. The Jesuits wrote about um, how we could actually deal with this issue, so how young people could be better serviced rather than incarcerated, so better rehabilitated, if you like. Um, they were writing about this five, six years ago. So there's a paper they wrote, I think, 2014, that specifically deals with this issue. Um, so it's not it's not new by any means, but I think that there were, there was definitely um, a recent push. And there's a yes, sorry. I was going to say, do you think the this might be a little bit of a hot hot question, but has the the culture around the age of criminal culpability come about from politic a political stance, or is it evident? Did it come from somewhere at some point? From evidence, like, do you know it's historically why it was why it's become the way it is? No, it's a really good question, though. No, I don't. It certainly wouldn't be from evidence because all the evidence is to the contrary. There's no evidence that incarceration at a young age is any way a deterrent. In fact, it increases recidivism. So there's definitely no evidence. And I mean, one of the things the Jesuits wrote recently um, that the Attorneys General decided not to raise the age because they really didn't know what else to do. And I, did, I find that kind of astounding. Like there's lots of people have written about how we might work with these young people. There's lots of evidence from around the world how young people are, are worked with rehabilitated. You know, the UK, Scandinavia, there's lots of great models. Canada, you know, countries that are comparable to Australia. There's been some awesome work done in Scotland in recent years, particularly around violent offending. So there's great models. I think one of the difficulties, I guess, is to put that into law and then to fund services. Personally, I think there's also um, a push, you know, at least here in Victoria, but I think it happens around Australia, there's this idea about tough on crime. And I think it's a combination of um, some right, I won't say right wing media, but certainly right leaning um, media and politics. 
and ignorance. Like there's this idea that somehow that's going to make the community safer or that that's going to reduce offending. There's just no basis for it. It's just a really reductionistic idea or a slogan. Like there's nothing to it. And it costs us taxpayers huge amounts of money um, to lock up young people and lock them up as young people. But also what people don't realise is that they're then going to have to continue to pay because the earlier you lock up a young person, the more likely it is that they're going to be in prison as an adult. So... Um, I think people don't realise that they're committing to long-term spending when they start to lock young people up. So the evidence is the earlier that you're in custody, the, the more likely you are to re-offend and end up in custody again. That evidence is really clear. And that's not just Australia, that's not Victoria, that's around the world. Mm. So it's, for me it's nonsensical. So I don't, I don't know the answer to your question, but it's a, a good one to find out. I think the um, tough on crime approach yeah. is probably one where um, I studied my, in my undergrad, criminology was um, my other sort of major subject and it comes up a lot around public perception and political winning over mm. research and evidence because it's easier to sell something like that. And I don't understand that really. Like, I know, I think those kinds of like, people want a simple answer for something. They want it to be one thing. It's like, when did life get that simple? Life is not that simple. It's not, it's just kind of this life, life is complicated and messy and grubby and, you know, all of these kind of multifaceted things. So, why would we think? that this one thing is going to solve a problem. Like it's such a ridiculous idea. Mm. Um, so it's kind of ridiculous at that level, but it's not like if you know anything, like if you give someone five minutes with me and they can find out something about young people who are offending, you would realise that that is no kind of problem solution. Like that's not a fit. Mm. Um, but it's a difficult message. I think that's the thing. You know, it is a difficult message that it's people go, oh, right, it's complicated or it's, they're not going to get an easy outcome. You know, that, um, that this idea that it takes a range of different services to support a family, to support a young person, to do work, to create community cohesion and connectedness isn't... You know, you can't see easy numbers for, oh, yeah, okay, we're going to put our taxpayers' monies there and this is going to be the outcome. Like, I think if people go, oh, well, if we stick to this tough on crime idea and we know there's how many X billion dollars spent on prisons, then we have the perception that that's solving the problem. So I think it's an easy idea. Do you think it's, it's changing a bit more now with a lot more... I guess, information about trauma-informed work and trauma-informed practice coming into services and understanding the impact of early childhood experiences and intergenerational trauma and intergenerational poverty. Is that filtering through into forensics? 
Oh, absolutely. I think inside the systems, people are really clear. So it's not that people in the system think that it's that this is a great way to deal with it. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I think that um, it was it's been that's been slowly occurring for a number of years. I went to maybe five years ago. I think it was 2015. I went to a international forensic mental health conference, and it was really starting to. Um, it was quite a clear message at that point. We need to start to deal with the trauma. You can have all kinds of specialist interventions for different types of offending, but what we know is most people who are incarcerated have a history of trauma, you know, multiple cumulative trauma. And if we don't deal with that, you know, doing some CBT for violence is probably not gonna have a great outcome. So absolutely, and part of my role now, so I, I coordinate this team of clinicians who work with YJ clients in the community, and I have a role where I work in custody at Parkville with the staff, so I provide mental health education, professional development for them. And um, I guess there's been a real shift, I've seen a shift uh, even in the last couple of years which really we need to think about the backgrounds of young people. We need to consider the trauma that they've experienced and understand their behaviour in that context. That there's, you know, people, this idea, oh, it's attention-seeking, it's just behavioural. It's like that, that doesn't explain their behaviour in any way at all. So I think that's really led from, you know, the director and um, from the general manager in custody. They're really clear that we need to shift at all levels. So from the, the floor staff in custody all the way through and in terms of the treatment services, absolutely, they're much more focused on trauma that people have experienced and trying to reduce the systems abuse and trauma that can occur um, through virtue of being incarcerated. What have been some of your own um, maybe personal challenges working in that space? Because it sounds like the staff there or a lot of the people who work in the system have an understanding of trauma and had a lower recidivism rates, but then the broader community or the funding or the, the, the systemic things maybe don't necessarily support that. How do you... I guess maybe balance that or what's challenging about it. There was about six questions in that, so I might yeah. <laughs> got excited. I think, yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing that's challenging, isn't it? Exactly. You kind of answered the question really with your later questions that some of one of the things that's challenging is knowing that um, some of the bigger issues that will make a difference, you know, some of the disadvantage and the trauma is, is a long way from being addressed. You know, there's been a couple of recent reports, um, Victorian government reports, um, on a group of young people called the Crossover Kids, known as the Crossover Kids, and they're young people who are involved with both justice and, or the criminal justice system and the child protection system. And so this really affects, in terms of kind of going back to raise the age and the 10 to 13 year olds, this has a significant impact on the 10 to 13 year olds because they're much, um, high, much greater representation in this group. 
these young people. They have, you know, they're in the child protection system earlier, they're in the criminal justice system earlier and likely to continue. They have higher rates of neurodisability. So I think that's one of the challenges, kind of knowing there are systems, you know, I know there's been a lot of work done over time, but the outcomes don't seem markedly different in the child protection system. Um, you know, there's greater kind of social issues and social disadvantage, particularly for young Indigenous people in that system. They're the most disadvantaged in that group um, and particularly in the 10 to 13-year-old age group. Um, the, the statistics about those young people are really, really difficult to sit with. Um, the stories even more, you know, when you you meet those young people or, or talk to elders in the community. And one of the positions in my program is with the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service. Um, and so we, we do, you know, we know that, you know, the real stories, they're not just statistics, but they're, they're very hard to sit with. So I think that's the kind, for me, that's the challenge is the, the heaviness of people's experience and trying to remember what you can do or hold on to what you can do because there's so much you can't do. Um, and I think try and, try and be as well in one of the other challenges is to really be as educated as you can and that's, you know, that's why I really like my current role is to try and work with the staff in custody because they have a really tough job. It's a really, really difficult job and they cop a lot of really challenging behaviour and so trying to help them understand why they're, the young people are behaving in the way that they do and being able to help them make some change in how they work with that, I kind of go, okay, if, if that can give a young person who's in custody a different experience, I kind of focus like I can do that bit. You know, also to support... Um, my colleagues in different parts of the youth, because youth forensics is a really small sector. There's only a, a small group of us work in this area. So I think to make sure we come together and support one another, that um, support one another in making change, you know, to support the youth parole board, that we really work together to try and um, create the most positive outcomes that we can for young people. But I think realistic, like, I, you know, kind of just me in any day-to-day, -day, how do I do it? No, I try and, same as anyone, try and make sure that I have some balance. So I have, for me, somebody said to me, and I've often repeated this, um, that the the balance thing is really literal, that the energy, you know, physical, mental, emotional energy that you put into your work has to be balanced with what you what you gain outside of your work. But when the scales start to tip, it's not really sustainable. So doing things like exercising, walking in the bush, being with friends, all those things that are those good mental health things, being connected. And I think that's why I'm reminded of that all of the time because it's one of the real challenges for our young people is their connectedness is really, um, that's one of the disadvantages, I guess, that they often have poor connectedness with family, with community, 
with they don't feel like they fit socially and that's a really vicious cycle for them so it's a good lesson for me to remember you know when I feel exhausted it's like it's still really important to see your friends and you know at the moment like we all probably have some zoom fatigue yeah, for sure. <laughs> you get to the weekend and you're like, oh, I really want to see my friends, but I'm not sure I can do more Zoom. Like you have to. Same as when you're tired and you don't feel like exercising, you're like, yeah, and it'll be good for me. Yeah. You answered, I had several questions and you just kept answering them one by one. So, so, oh. <laughs> so perfect because I was going to ask, what do you do for yourself and how do you um, keep well? And it sounds like a, there are a lot of the tips that so many practitioners share, um, you know, the ongoing professional learning, which you, you did just naturally and the self-care and how important that is to not, burn out because you can't work at full speed maybe you can for a year or two but then things crumble and you can't do the work you love if you're burnt totally. out yeah i think this idea of kind of giving away your energy is really um i think trying to, that's the thing that i guess early in my career that was a real challenge to learn to support people without giving because giving all of my kind of emotional energy actually it's a misnomer that you're giving it to someone like they're going to have it to walk away with. So I think um, that takes time. I mean, it takes good supervision, you know, great supervision. I'm sure I'm not the first person <laughs> to say it on your podcast, but good regular supervision is super important, you know, to really reflect on what you're doing and how you're doing it and to be honest in that space. Mm. Because I think all of us want, especially when supervision, I think is really, it's problematic when it's with line managers and you feel like you have to kind of have everything in hand and, oh, yeah, it's all good. Yep, ticking all the boxes. Everything's great. Um, if, you, if you can't be honest about your struggles, then it's really hard to grow as well. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I mean, not to shame anybody, but I find it really striking when people get to the end of their um, registration year and they think oh, I haven't done my minimum supervision hours I think you're missing out on so much valuable opportunity you, yeah. if you can't afford a supervisor you can go harvest with someone you can do a peer group but having that regular meeting of professionals I, I don't know how people can survive without it I think it's mm. so crucial to grow to reflect to look at compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma to get oh, new yeah. ideas and for someone as well to notice hey you're not you're not seeming yourself or you're a little bit more grumpy or negative like other people might notice how you present as symptoms of burnout before you even do so i don't i do get quite astounded when i see people saying i haven't met my 10 hours for the year i'm like how how is it only 10 hours for the year? I think oh that's, goodness. I think, yeah, I think that for AMHSWs, it's something like that. It's not enough. That is, <laughs> that is definitely not enough. I think I have about 12 I hours had, a month. <laughs> yeah, I think, and like really varied supervision, 
You know, I've I've been so fortunate. One of the things I really was amazing about doing, um, and I know this is a social work podcast, but doing um, post grad psychology was um, had this incredible supervision. Like I, I would have somebody. So every session that I did as a student was video recorded, and then we had to excruciatingly watch it back with my supervisor. You know, I had a CBT supervisor and a psychodynamic supervisor. I had, I did ACT groups and I had ACT supervisor. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I love all this supervision. I've never had this much kind of opportunity to reflect on my work. It was so awesome. So I think, um, and that was just a, you know, a freaky little window in time as a student. And I think, I guess, kind of being an experienced clinician also totally happy to sit in that role. Of, of learning and supervision. Um, but I think when I first started, I, I was totally one of those burnout people. I just gave everything away and thought if I just work harder and work more and give more of myself that, you know, I will somehow be able to make people okay. And it was, it was so flawed. Mm. Didn't make anyone okay. <laughs> I ended up just being like a piece of dirt on the floor under someone's shoe. Oh, that's a really sad image. It was terrible. It was, it was, it looked exactly like that. Oh, I'm so um, sorry. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I don't think it's uncommon though in helping professions. Yep. You know, I don't think it's exclusive to social workers. I think lots of helpers um, do the same thing. And so I, I feel really clear, you know, one of the things, the longer I do this work, the kind of boundary about finishing work on time and doing things that are good for me are really super important. Doing things that are silly and, yeah, and nourishing. You have to, you have to do things that kind of, it's not my expression, but fill your cup. You know, you really have to give back to yourself if you're going to do a really um, kind of what sometimes a heart-wrenching job. For those interested in perhaps exploring getting into forensic work, what advice mm. would you have for them about ways to maybe reconceptualise the maybe the reputation of the, the sector to extra training they might like to consider? Any tips or advice for those thinking, oh, I'm actually curious about this now? For sure. I think, um, and I, I don't know what other people think about this, but I think it's a great job for social workers. I think social workers are really well equipped to do the work. So if, you know, and I, I hold in mind what I said before about psychologists kind of owning it in some ways. And whilst that's true, there are some social work roles and actually it's that, it's that kind of, old school, you know, holistic view, systems understanding and to be able to hold the individual in their context. That's really helpful in, I mean, it's helpful in any area, but particularly I think in forensics, when you think about support work and treatment and people's outcomes. Um, so I think the first thing is don't, don't think like I did that um, you have to be a psychologist to do it because actually that's not true at all, um, <laughs> as I've now discovered. Um, there's some good courses. 
Uh, so Swinburne has some courses in forensic mental health. There's social work courses there. Um, so there's a, a master's and even I think a doctorate for social workers in forensic mental health. Um, I've done lots of different training, particularly around risk assessment, so forensic risk assessment. And again, I think great for social workers. And there's a whole range, both in youth and adult forensics, um, of social workers who do that kind of work. Um, and so Forensic Hair and the Centre for Behavioural Science and Swinburne, mostly here in Melbourne, do all of that kind of um, training, education work. Um, I think in terms of kind of conceptualising the field that our, our young people, whilst they, they clearly engage in offending behaviour, they are some of the most disadvantaged young people in our systems, in our child protection system, you know, this young Indigenous people in the mental health system, these are some of the most disadvantaged. So if you really want to make a difference, if you really feel like I want to work with people who really need help, these are the people, you know. The young people, particularly those who repeatedly come into custody, um, often come from generational poverty, substance abuse, um, child protection involvement, poverty, you know, intergenerational trauma. Um, there's a really high over-representation of Indigenous, South Sudanese and Pacifica young people in the um, youth criminal justice system. So certainly if you're, you're from those cultural groups, I would strongly, strongly encourage you. We absolutely need more cultural knowledge and expertise in our work with these young people. Um, so I, th I think you come, as a social worker, you come with great skills to do that work anyway. Um, I, I think that knowing, you know, learning the literature and doing extra study can be helpful. Um, but I think there's lots of support work where you don't necessarily need to do additional training. Um, and maybe I missed one of your questions. I think it was, oh, tips? I don't know what tips are to have. Tips is, I think tips is not to be scared, not to have this really narrow view that a young person, and especially those those children, for me, they're children, those 10 to 13-year-olds, you know, yes, they might have committed some, in some cases, some violent offences, um, but it's not by any means who they are. It is, it is something that they did and it's important to hold, but it's also important to hold, you know, where's their family? You know, where's this young person's safety? What about their, their history? You know, are the, do they have a history of trauma? Where do they fit and belong? So I think holding them as a as a child, and they are like cognitively, they are absolutely children. They have many years before their brains finish developing. You know, particularly their executive functions. Not until they're in their mid twenties, so they've got a long time to go. Um, and so about their moral development. You know, it's also a long way off. So I think um, holding them as people. Not as a as a criminal offence is really important. 
Fantastic. And I'm sure some of the listeners will be very interested to hear about the different opportunities to work in forensic services. And I'll try and find that Jesuit paper and some of the other resources and pop them in the notes for those who are interested. Oh, I'm happy to, to send some of those things to you. Yeah, That'd for sure. I can send you a couple of links. There's some great papers. Um, there's one I read recently, particularly um, some recent studies, so one that was released last year, um, looking at the difference of young um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous offenders, uh, done by, I think, Papiella and Shepherd and some other colleagues. Um, so I can send you some of those papers, if yeah, you like, absolutely. to um, put on there. Yeah. I'm happy to do it. And we'll encourage everyone to check out the hashtag raise the age as well. Totally, yeah. And I think um, I'll also send you the um, fact sheets for the crossover kids studies uh, because they're really, the big reports, are, they're huge reports, but they're actually not that difficult to read, but they produced fact sheets, um, which are super easy. Um, so, yeah, I'm happy to send through all of those things. I think they're they really help give you a broader view. Great. Thanks so much. The age. Thanks for You're coming welcome. on the podcast. Ah, nice to talk to you, Maria, and I'll um, probably see you around the neighbourhood. <laughs> for sure. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode's resources and don't forget to click subscribe and review us wherever it is you get your podcasts.